Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. And I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. This episode is going to be an important one. We are going to discuss a brand new, previously unknown, or very, what would the word be, not well publicized tool for you to measure if the monetary system is healthy, how it's making on. Because in the mainstream media, we're told stocks are up, everything's fine. But if you've been watching this show for any length of time, you know that the creation and destruction of money comes first, and then everything radiates from there. And Jeff recently wrote a two-part article, and this is going to be a two-part episode where we are going to reveal this new measure that has been working for over a decade now that will help us determine how is the shadow system doing. Okay, Jeff, welcome to the show. Tell us about Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg. Who were they? How do they fit in? They're both famous economists, I think. Oh, How dare you impute their character? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Sully their reputations. That's that's probably the worst joke to start with. No, the, the eminent physicists from the earliest 20th century, both who helped develop quantum quantum physics. Uh, you know, Niels Bohr gave us uh, first of all the uh, the working model of an atom, sort of you know the orbits that you're all taught with in high school. Well, Werner Heisenberg is probably most well known for his uncertainty principle, which is really where we're going today. In that, um, what both of these guys knew, and along with Albert Einstein and a bunch of early physicists, was that a lot of what happens down on a fundamental, very elementary level, we just we can't observe, and in many ways. We can't even really comprehend. So we have to understand that, you know, as Heisenberg formulated his uncertainty principle, that we, we, need to, we need to realize and recognize that what we're looking at isn't really what we're looking at. We're looking at experiments, and we're, we're seeing the results of experiments. And we can't draw necessarily hard and fast conclusions from those experiments alone. What Niels Bohr said, and what he, what he got Heisenberg to admit and agree to was what he called complementarity which was essentially the idea that, look, we have, to, we have these experiments and they can tell us a little bit about little individual pieces of a system, but we have to, look, we have to be aware of the totality of the phenomena, which is how all of these experiments fit together and how we can piece everything together and create a comprehensive whole based on, again, understanding the limits of our own technology, the limits of our own understanding, the limits, maybe even the limits of human knowledge itself. Or the human mind. I exactly. forgot the name of the French polyglot uh, Henry Poincaré, and he's got that amazing quote among many is that, if I remember correctly, geometry is advantageous or not true that it's advantageous. I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but basically that, you know, it fits the human mind and therefore we accept it, this way of looking at it, but that it doesn't necessarily have to be that way in reality. It's just how it's easy for the monkey brain to perceive. Well, speaking of monkeys, it's yeah, an that's easy right. segue we're to right. We're perceiving exactly. We're 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 trying to perceive a reality that may be beyond our grasp to comprehend. And it's really it's a, it's a it, in some sense it's a it's a frightening uh, frightening realization, but in others it's it's very humbling and it keeps us. You know, we have to look at everything. We can't just narrow in on certain parts because we have to remember that we are limited in what we can do. Yeah, another one of his quotes that I found disturbing was that it's perfectly 
reasonable to think of the earth spinning in the universe and the universe spinning around the earth, but it's just we perceive that it's the earth spinning and that it's just advantageous for us to think of that way. But mathematically, I hope I'm not butchering it. Do you know, am I saying it right? Jeff, I'm yeah, stepping the, into your the, territory You've got the here. gist of it, which is, yeah, exactly that. Our, we have to perceive what are utterly impressively complex systems and we're really not wired to do that. We're really wired to do simple things because that's, you know, that's how you survive. You, you survive very simply. And our perception of reality doesn't necessarily have to match up with reality. And even mathematics itself that's right. has its own limitations because yeah. it comes from our, per, you know, not to, break, not to break out into some teleological argument here, but even the mathematics itself is a tool for help to help us perceive a reality when you know Heisenberg and Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein said, you know, it may be it may just be on our limits, and math is really just our way of describing, in our own sense, of what we can, what we perceive. I, before the show started, I said I wasn't going to interject. I'm just going to go because we have so much to cover. But here I am interjecting again, and it's not just mathematics. I remember not just those individuals that you've mentioned, but uh, Claude Shannon and uh, oh God, Turing as well. They also made the point that it's you needed these oracles, you needed these outside deciders as to what is true, that you could, the system itself could improve what's true. Eventually, you need some outside force, which is beyond our perception or ability to understand. Why is this factor? Why is this a constant? Okay. Yeah, Say you're describing Russell's paradox, and we can, we can go in a lot of different directions with that. And it's it's really true. It's like how do you how do we know objective reality when we when we're a part of that reality, right? We don't know it's, it's there's no such thing as objectivity. And when we segueing towards is there the, any way to economics segue? and money is I don't know. You know, this is an utterly complex system. Is going back to Adam Smith, you know, his invisible hand was essentially an admission that. We cannot directly observe what goes on in an economy. It's too complex. It's too granular to, to you know, it's not like we can just total up every transaction that uh, takes place and say, this is what actually happens. We have to accept these limitations are not just in data terms, but in perceiving perception terms and everything else. And it's, it's even more true nowadays with, you know, a monetary system that is, that is, that is completely left all traditional boundaries of, conceptions of money and finance and things like that behind where even you know uh mainstream textbooks and things still haven't caught up to where we were in the 1950s and 60s let alone the, the 2000s and things like that so we're really handicapped in how we can perceive this reality in economics more so than any other places and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we just you know uh mainstream economics is dominated in the sense that this is really simple. We just we just turn everything over to Alan Greenspan and the Federal Reserve. We don't care about the details. Therefore, we're not even going to develop the tools necessary to make decent observations. We're just going to we're just going to our our perception of reality is that it's all very simple, which is all very stupid. Tools, observations, physicists use them, and so do economists and amateur YouTubers trying to understand the monetary system. And you give an example here of bank reserves and so I, I suppose what our earlier discussion right now is yes this is an experiment that we're going to talk about but we also have to keep in mind what we talked about earlier that this is just one narrow slice looking through the keyhole that there's so much more 
that maybe all we can talk about is really just ex this experiment and it doesn't apply to the broader system. Give us this experiment. You started out, we do this all the time in formalizing our understanding of bank reserves. For example, how do we describe them and their function? We get out our T diagrams. Tell us what goes on from there. Yeah, the T diagram is nothing more than the simple. You have assets on the left-hand side, liabilities on the right-hand side. You have two two counterparties. You got the central bank and whatever hypothetical bank. And you simply do a one single transaction where the central bank buys an asset from the bank and, and gives them bank reserves as it offsets. So essentially, the asset swap, and that's really what we look at when we try to uh, try to analyze bank reserves and say, well, what is a bank reserve transaction? What does quantitative easing or an LSAP transaction actually look like? And we break it down to its most what we think is its most elemental level, but yet when we do so. We forget about this is one transaction amidst an ocean of transactions, including many that are related, excuse me, many that are related and offset by any number of other things. Again, going back to Niels Bohr complementarity, you know, totality of the phenomenon. Yeah, maybe that's strictly true on an elemental level, what, what happens in quantitative easing, that that's the actual transaction, individual transaction, but it doesn't really tell us enough or even maybe even anything meaningful about about what actually happens or what what's really going on in the, rea the as far as the reality of the system. Excellent point. And now you give another example. By the way, this article that I'm reading off of, the first part of the quantum of money, QE, repo, and Niels Bohr, posted on the first of June, 2021, at Alhambra Investments. We're going basically paragraph by paragraph. I highlighted everything except a couple of paragraphs. So now another example, now we're gonna talk about repo. Most people attempt to re reconcile repo in this ceteris paribus sort of framework as a bank which wants to conduct a repo transaction, singular. And then you say already public perception is at a disadvantage because? Yeah, if you, when we think about buying a US treasury, for example, we think about how we would do it because yeah. our perception is that. Hmm. And you, you show up to your broker, you have money in a money market fund, you have an account, a checking, whatever, you have the funds available, the broker executes the transaction and you have a DVP transaction coming back, which means your cash goes out at the same time the treasury comes in. That's how we proceed, you know, it's, it's, it's almost the same way as you would go into a grocery store and buy something. You present a form of payment and get something in return, but that's not really how it works. You know, it's, it's, it, it can be somewhat helpful to think about things in these elemental, you know, these individual thought experiments. But I think in a lot of ways we do ourselves a disservice because we're thinking about them in a way that doesn't actually happen in real life. We're trying to perceive the basics of reality when reality is just because it's such so much more complicated and nuanced. It almost is. Again, I think we're doing ourselves a disservice because what really happens is that a bank or a financial system doesn't doesn't get out its checkbook and write a check for the treasury note it simply orders its you know whatever desk or whatever whatever part of the system whatever part of the bank that's doing the transaction to go into the market and, and, and secure a treasury and what i mean i mean when we say buy we're actually we have to be specific about what we're talking about there too because we're talking about establishing full ownership and title over the asset where Banks can acquire treasuries for other purposes where it doesn't necessarily need to establish full ownership over the asset. 
So we can acquire treasuries, limited rights usages in many different ways. So we, again, we have to be we have to be very careful about what we're talking about because it's it's so unlike what you or I are able to do. What banks get away with, or you not really get away with. This is just standard practice the way it is, and and, and the way it has worked for a very long time. There's so much to cover. I'm just trying to make sure that we touch on each of the points there. Uh, here's an important line. In our simple example, the bank doesn't actually need any money whatsoever to come into possession of an asset. I think that's what we're going to be talking about a lot here in these next couple of examples is uh, the ways it can get money without actually having money. But yes, to your point here also that there are many different forms of ownership and the bank knows or is what it what it's interested which level of ownership okay then so for a bank that wishes to establish title definitely buy a treasury note there needn't be any cash on hand at the start either okay good i'm glad we got to that it's like you telling us that the universe is spinning around the earth and not the earth spinning within the universe it, it all depends okay so tell us in the morning, it directs its market-making operation to go, and what happens next? Well, it buys a treasury from a seller, usually another agent. And again, buy means establish full ownership title, so the seller agrees to relinquish ownership over the asset and transfer it. Now, immediately, the seller is credited with some form of cash, which is really, what, from the perspective of the treasury buyer, a daylight overdraft. It incurs a daylight overdraft, which means essentially a margin deduction from its whatever if it has reserves beginning at the beginning of the day or whatever is going on in the inter inter interbank um, plumbing so to speak so it, essentially, it, doesn't it doesn't send money right away no it doesn't have to in fact the, the inter the uh, it's essentially uh, if it's done on the fedwire system essentially the federal reserves extending uh, intraday credit or in the tripartite repo system it's the tripartite repos custodian extending intraday credit the buyer got the money, the credit. Yes, the, but the, the sell. Wait, the, the seller. seller got the <laughs> yeah. money. The but seller the buyer is didn't put it up yet. Yes, right. The sellers, but remember, the seller is doing a whole bunch of other things too. So you know, it's all of these things get jumbled together intraday, which is again, when you're trying to put these together as a singular transaction, you're really doing yourself a disservice because there's all sorts of other things going on. But yet, if we if we break it down into an individual transaction, by and large, what happens is banks will run intraday credits or daylight overdrafts, which are given to them by the custodian or the platform on, 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 on which all of these things are taking place. It used to be in the 19 or before the 90s, the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve Almost exclusively, yes. used to provide this daylight overdraft where they would they would send the credit to the seller and then turn back and look at the buyer at the end of the day and say, you know, yeah, you, you owe me money. Exactly. But so the eventually the, under that situation, you could see how the yes. Fed was would eventually this Fed is uh, the last last in, in line here. They're they're the ones that's on the hook for if you know you don't pay for the transaction the treasury you bought you don't pay up at the end of the day you then be then owe the federal reserve money and the federal reserve has already credited the other account so they've they've created a loan for you so at the end of the day the fed is behind all of that stuff and what they saw was that dealers and especially in the repo market were taking advantage of what was essentially a free form of intraday credit and decided well 
are we really financing speculation here? Which, I mean, to a central bank, at least an you know, old central bank, that was, that was one thing you never wanted to do. You never wanted to finance speculation. So they decided they were going to start charging for, they were going to put position limits on, they were going to start charging for daylight overdrafts and so all sorts of other things. And into that vacuum stepped J.P. Morgan and Bank of New York Mellon, who were at that time already large uh, transactions and market custodians anyway. And they came up with this scheme called tri-party repo where essentially they would perform the same sort of matching financing uh, backstop services that the Federal Reserve had provided up until that point. So when you move over to the tri-party repo, the same thing happens. You, you know, you buy the treasury without fronting any cash. You incur a daylight overdraft, only now the daylight overdraft is, is with J.P. Morgan mostly, or at least it was before 2008. And therefore, they're the ones that are eventually on the hook, which, of course, if you're thinking ahead toward 2007, 2008, now you understand why J.P. Morgan was at the center of so much of the turmoil and trouble that went on in the global financial crisis. Because as tri-party repo custodian, not only were they incurring these daylight overdrafts, they had to know what was going on with all of these dealers that were doing the they were doing the incurring in the first place, because the repo market was essentially their own created backyard. And they could see what was happening collateral-wise, who had collateral, what collateral was being pledged. And it wasn't just strictly on a one-for-one -one basis. It wasn't just one transaction, then another, then another. It was this, this ocean of you know, uh, collateral colliding with cash and, and you know, daylight overdrafts and settling up at the end of the day. And who can possibly owe it? You know, liquidity profiles and all sorts of other complicated topics. We're going to talk more about that in part two of this episode. But now our... Our seller, who has, has a daylight overdraft with a tri-party custodian, uh, has to provide cash. And you provide several examples of how that might be done. Buyer. Remember, it's the treasury buyer that's got the overdraft. I know. It's, yes, it gets, yes. It gets confusing really easily. And that's, that's really gotta, why... No, and Emil, that's why we do the simple T diagrams. Because yes. if you don't, then that's, that's where it's helpful. It's helpful to define our terms, but we got to remember, again, th thinking back to Niels Bohr and Werner Heisenberg, that, okay, the totality of the phenomena is not those T-diagrams. That's just to help you define and illustrate the concept and the terms, but what actually happens, it gets real complicated real fast. So how does this transaction get funded? You give us several examples. It could be funded by a scheduled incoming intrabank payment from another counterparty so they're counting on someone else to give them cash so they can pass it along yeah or right maybe... and think about it that way you know that a payment's coming in so you're going to invest that money before it shows up and that's that's typical practice too. i mean yeah i know Risky. you think we roll our eyes <laughs> me. It, but that's that's standard practice that's the way it works and so you know that's one way to do it you know you got if you know you're you know you've got a certain number of outgoing payments and a certain number of incoming payments, and you leave you leave yourself a little bit of margin for unpredictable events that happen. But if your if your outgoing payments are less than the incoming payments, you've got excess excess liquidity, and so you know at the end of the day I'm going to have this excess liquidity. So you're going to have the treasury that you're going to invest that excess liquidity in lined up before the excess liquidity shows up, and that's a, that's just a bank being efficient. Yes, another way they could pay. A collateral swap. What is that? 
essentially you brought in a treasury, which means that you know you've bought, you've established title over a treasury. You could swap it out with another form that you've already, you know, another another type of security which you've already arranged in some other fashion, some other transaction, which essentially allows you to um, get into a bunch of other transactions that eventually bring cash back into the to the picture. And another option, a short sale. Exactly, right? They could sell, get the cash, and then use that to pass it along. Although right. eventually now there's another liability, eventually, because they borrowed that. But okay. So, okay, good. So those are examples of how they could raise the funds. How and then the main example, which we're getting to, is just repo. You know you've bought the treasury. You haven't put up any cash for it. You've incurred a daylight overdraft. And so at the end of the day, again, if we're thinking about this as an individual transaction, at the end of the day, you got to square yourself with J.P. Morgan. J.P. Morgan has is already credited the seller's account, and therefore he's going to knock on your door and say, "Look, it's five o'clock. It's five fifteen's approaching. You got to have cash in the account." So what you do is you go into the repo market. You contact, you know, J.P. Morgan as Triporty Repo Custodian already knows what's going on. The re- they arrange for you to find repo financing in the, in the repo market. You do a repo transaction where the funds are presented. In uh, in collateralized or secured by the collateral that you've just you've just sustained uh, you've just obtained full title over. So at the end of the day, you start out by buying a treasury with no cash. Then you, at the end of the day, uh, square everything by going into repo and borrowing the funds to to do it. So you buy first, borrow later. And now the twist, which is where we're going to in part two. We were just looking at this as an individual transaction, but as you say, but even that's not really a thing because this isn't really much closer to what must be shadow money really either. Banks run entire portfolios of securities and assets and liabilities. This is not just one item. It's, a, as you said earlier, pools, assets, oceans that they're weighing. And that's where we're going to turn to in part two. Is there anything that we didn't cover in part one that you wanted to bring up? No, I think it's just keep in mind the fact that that's where we're going here. Looking at these things in very simple ways, like we're doing, breaking them down by individual transaction, has a very limited usage for us. It can help us, again, define our terms about what's actually taking place, but it doesn't describe reality. It just describes a stylized example which has a very limited use for understanding what really goes on. And of course, what we're really trying to understand is the implications where all of these things come together. And at the end of this part two episode, we're going to see a new measure of the monetary shadows. Jeff, welcome back to part two of a very important episode. I'm excited. The first part we discussed, which I think this is the first time I ever told anybody that they need to see it before watching this episode. The first part was called The First Part of Quantum of Money, QE, Repo, and Niels Bohr. Now we're the second part of the Quantum of Money, Results from the Tri-Party Repo Experiment, both posted on the 1st of June at Alhambra Investments. And we left off talking about, did I already mention in this part that at the end of this episode, we're going to be talking about a new way a way that I, maybe it's not new. I know, Jeff, at the beginning of the, before the show started, you say, well, it's not new, but I've not seen it discussed anywhere else. I think it'll be new to our audience of how to measure the shadow monetary system. One aspect, we can't measure it in totality, but we can get 
a sense from this new measure and combine it with some of the other ones that we've discussed previously. Back well, to yeah, the let's, show. Before we go, let's, yes. let's expound upon that point a little bit more. What we're mm. talking about is, as we said in part one, tri-party repo. Now, tri-party repo is what happens where a repo borrower and a cash, a cash lender and a collateral supplier get together using a custodian bank and it's all, you know, it's, it's all happens transparently, um, usually on the books of that custodian or the custodians arranging for all of these things to happen. But that's not the full extent of the quote unquote repo market either. Much, if not majority of repo actually takes place outside of that context in bilateral arrangements, which means, you know, you don't go to JP Morgan in the morning and arrange a repo or in the afternoon and arrange a repo transaction. You just you call somebody you know and directly in, in, uh, and just engage in a transaction one-to-one. That's a bilateral arrangement that doesn't really show up anywhere except upon your books and the, and the counterparty's books. And if we're talking about, of course, foreign banks engaging with other foreign banks, you know, U.S. systems, data collection efforts may not, may not – that may not show up anywhere. So much of the repo market is, that, is truly shadow stuff. It's the tri-party repo market that we have the most ability to observe because the Federal Reserve Bank of New York requires these custodians to report to them what's going on in their tri-party repo book. And this is more recent stuff, but it has been, you know, they've been required to report for a long time. We're just now getting more access to what goes on in tri-party repo. But as we, going back to Niels Bohr and what we talked about in part one, we're still not getting the entire picture. And so we have to keep in mind that the, even this experiment, as we get even more complicated and bring more elements to it, it's still not the full extent of what, what goes on in the repo market. And so we're, we're in danger. We have to keep in mind we're making assumptions. What we see in tri-party repo can tell us something important about what must be going on outside of tri-party repo in the bilateral hidden uh, repo market, which we can't really know for sure. And so going back to Niels Bohr, totality of phenomena we're trying to match this better view of what we think is reality with other sorts of data including real-time pricing mechanism and things like that to try to come up with a, a comprehensive picture of what must be going on in a complex system that as Bohr said maybe just beyond our ability to simply comprehend and it's it's an important task and it's a it's a, it's a really important thing since 2008 but we have to bear in mind that all of these limitations that make it incredible, that much more difficult to do. That said, we're going to do it anyway because there really isn't much choice. Wonderful. Yeah, gathering multiple independent points of view, uh, of perspectives on something, and then seeing if they agree. That's something that Daniel Want often talks about. Maybe we should talk to him soon. Okay, let us look. I'm going to read a few lines here. And then we're going to continue our experiment. So there are groupings of securities over which the bank has varying degrees of control. Some outright purchases, some are shorted, some are borrowed, others themselves part of complex iterations like transformation, pledged in one of several securities financing transactions, not just repo, but also any other subset via derivatives. It's a blending of assets against a blending of liabilities. If, stretching our example a bit further, a bank has pledged four types of assets. So here's our next experiment or example. What, what, four, exa what four, where, where are you going with this, with the four assets? 
Yeah, we started with the simple thought experiments, which was a single a single repo transaction where a bank buys a treasury, which means established full title and ownership over it in the morning, incurs a daylight overdraft, and at the end of the day goes in the repo market and closes out all its obligations. Now, what we're going to do is what we hope is a step more realistic, which is realize that banks aren't just running single transactions. They're not filling out a portfolio one, one, one asset at a time. They have thousands upon thousands of assets to manage. They have competing desks and, and competing mandates that are often doing different things at different times. And so they essentially have an ocean of assets to match against an ocean of liability choices and try to manage both risks as well as return to get the most efficient use out of both sides of their balance sheets. In our, our, little, our less, uh, less simplistic example that we're going to go to here, we'll imagine that a bank has four different types of collateral. Uh, I think I started with an off-the-run treasury note, an on-the-run treasury bill, um, a corporate junk bond, and what was the other MBS. one? MBS. <laughs> agency MBS. MB, agency MBS. Of course. How could I forget the Fannie and Freddie? So we have all of those four types of collateral that we're going to use in not four different repo transactions, but wouldn't it make sense to have a single repo transaction? So you go to JP Morgan, I say, I have these assets on my books. I want to pledge them in repo because I need financing on my balance sheet. I need to balance assets and liabilities. And I'm going to pledge these four types of assets because of various different reasons that we couldn't even begin to describe. And that's what happens. You have a, tripo, a single repo transaction that might be backed by four different types of collateral, each one giving a different haircut because they represent different risks to the cash lender. And it's, a, it's sort of a blended transaction more accurately captures what really goes on in these places. What would happen, for example, if the off-the-run treasury starts to become a little bit more illiquid than it normally is? Or if the near-junk corporate bond becomes nearer junk corporate debt? What happens so you, then? Actually, uh, the, the next day when the repo transactions unwind, JP Morgan might say, before we get to repo for the for the for today, I'm going to need some adjustment in the collateral. You need to put up more of something else, maybe more of the on-the-run treasury bill rather than off-the-run treasury note. Or if maybe you've already over-collateralized, you've pledged more collateral to JP Morgan than you need, and so you're okay. And so JP Morgan just simply says, hey, you're in danger of, 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 of using up your over-collateralization because we're no longer seeing that off-the-run treasury the same way we did yesterday. We're not giving you the same amount of, of full value, full par value in the repo, uh, this blended repo transaction because the haircut has been perceived to be a little bit higher given the liquidity risk that we're, we're, we're seeing in the marketplace. So the idea is to protect both, all parties are trying to protect themselves but it's a dynamic world where things change all the time. And if you have four different types of collateral, you can expect at times that one of those, at least one of those forms of collateral is going to get the change, the terms upon that you're using with it are going to, are going to be changed on you without, without, uh, without you knowing ahead of time. And then you have to do something else. And what if I say, well, dear JP Morgan, we go back so long. We're friends. Let me give you more junk corporate bonds won't that make you happy won't that over collateralize it and they said you know we're, we're not just we're not interested in just taking any more we need liquid on the run treasuries or agency mbs and jeff what happens if i don't have that 
that's not available. And I'm not the only one dealing with JP Morgan. They're giving that call to lots of people. And there's a scramble for these liquid assets. If you run out of, if you're not over collateralized, your over collateralization gets used up and the haircuts change more extreme than you expect, you're right. You have to do something else. And what JP Morgan says, well, we may be friends, but <laughs> friends operate in the federal funds market, not in the repo market. <laughs> this is this is this is the cold business of repo here, okay. which means, you know, we, we can have a drink afterwards, but you're going to post collateral. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to kill your operation. This is this is what happened in the Bear Stearns and AIG and Lehman Brothers and all those 2008 examples where. JP Morgan said, I need more collateral or I'm going to shut you out of the tri-party repo system. Because remember, again, as we said in part one, as tri-party repos, the guy is, is the bank that's, that's extending these daylight overdrafts and allowing the system to work the way it has. At the end of the day, you know, if, if I don't post enough collateral, I can't balance my liabilities with the assets that I've, I've obtained. That means I'm cash deficient with, uh, with JP Morgan, which means JP Morgan is on the hook for what I'm doing. And they really don't want to do that. They don't want to be in that kind of a situation. So they're going to demand before you run out of collateral. We're seeing the changes in collateral terms all over the place. Before you run out, you better post more good collateral or we're going to shut you out and effectively put you out of business. And so that's where, okay, now I've got the call from JP Morgan, which means by the end of the day, I've got to find some usable collateral somewhere, somehow. Obviously, I can't just go out and buy it because... I don't have the cash to do it. So I'm going to have to put together some form, usually some complicated uh, complicated number of transactions and whether I can arrange some kind of securities financing where I can borrow treasuries from someplace else who will lend them to me on hopefully my junk bond collateral. So maybe I can swap out the junk the junk corporates that I've been using with, with this blended repo transaction and tri-party repo. I can use that as a collateral in a securities transformation where I'm getting back treasury bond or treasury uh, on the run treasury notes or bills that I've now borrowed, that I can swap those out into the this blended repo transaction just to maintain the same level of repo financing as I had yesterday. So it's not like I'm gaining anything here. I'm just trying to stay afloat by managing the all of these collateral liabilities. And I think you would be able to during a reflation because maybe it was just some idiosyncratic problem. Somebody drank the wrong cup of coffee and they're putting pressure on your hedge fund or your pension fund, or whatever it happens to be. But during a Euro dollar crisis, if you're in a silent depression, if you're in a monetary Euro dollar famine, then everyone's getting that call at the same time and there's not enough collateral for everyone to make good. And so what we or see- the, yeah, Or at the very least, the price of usable collateral starts to go up. Again, mm -hmm. it's typical inelasticity. It's, it really, when you think about collateral in terms of, of very currency-like properties, when it becomes inelastic, just like money in, you know, in the Great Depression, for example, the price of money went sky high because it became hard to, it became currency became very inelastic. And as you see the same thing happen in collateral exhibits these currency-like properties where when it's in short supply, the price goes through the roof. And what we're really talking about here is treasury bills. That's why we see, you know, March of last year, the, the, the price of treasury bills, especially during the most illiquid periods, especially during these periods where repo transactions were on everybody's mind, everybody was getting the call from tri-party repo custodians, and the prices of treasury bills would skyrocket through the roof because 
everybody was herded into that one asset class because the rest of the market started to break down and everybody started to look at all these other types of collateral very differently than they had the day before or the week before or the month before. I'm going to pull up some graphs now, but the two points that we just raised, one, during reflation, you should see a dispersion of eligible collateral because everything's going fine. Argentinian sovereign bonds, no problem. Emerging market corporate bonds, no problem because it's rainbows, sunshine, the world's recovering. Risk-taking, right? Yeah. Risk, I mean, that's... We, I mean, re reflation is essentially a risk on period. Now, it's a modest risk on period compared to, say, before 2008. But it's really that's really it is. It's a risk taking behavior. What you're showing here is the data that the Federal Reserve Bank of New York provides on the tri-party repo market provided to them from the call reports uh, given given by J.P. Morgan and Bank of New York. What you're seeing here isn't a sample. As the, as the FRBNY data makes clear, this is it. This is everything that has gone on, at least everything that's been recorded and reported in the tri-party repo market. But remember, as we said before, this is only tri-party repo and not the entire repo market. So we're, we're already limited in that, that respect. But still, here is a complete data source on tri-party repo in the US. And the two lines we're showing here are two different data points that the, that the, uh, the FRBNY collects. There are the number of repos, which, 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 as it says, the number of repo transactions in any given time period, the amount that are just simply tallied up. And then there is the number of observations for those repos, repo transactions. As you can see, there's more observations, more data points than there Wait, are number of repos. Let's stop. I, what is number of observations? How is that different from number of repos? Sounds similar. Because as you know, as as a database, you're reporting into a database, the number of repo transactions might have more than one collateral type associated with it. So a single repo may have more than one observation mm -hmm. because there are several different collateral pieces of collateral posted in that single repo transaction. As we just were talking about these blended repo op, op, blended repo transactions, where banks post more than one type of collateral to secure a single financing arrangement. Well, looking at that graph, nothing jumps out at me. So you transformed it with a very complex mathematical trans transformation called divided by. What do we see now? So we take the number of observations divided by the number of repos, and what we find is that, as we just talked, as you're just talking about, Emil, during reflationary periods, there tends to be more number of observations per repo transaction than otherwise. And what that says, as you just pointed out, it, it indicates or it implies that banks in the repo market are pledging more different types of collateral per repo transaction than they had been, you know, during these euro dollar periods where. Uh, where we have observed repeatedly the repo market gets herded into a narrower narrower subset so reflation risk taking more types of collateral gets uh, used to secure uh, individual repo transactions and then that 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 process re uh, somewhat reverses where you know it na really narrows down into the most usable forms of collateral and it's this constant back and forth one to the other one to the other so if i'm looking at this graph i see three euro dollar crises because i guess we didn't have the data for the first one right right so euro dollar number two what we see is the line going down flat to down euro dollar number three flat to down euro dollar four flat to down
reflation two and three straight up to the moon. Jeff, we are supposed to be in a reflation right now after the corona. That's not what we see. What we yeah, see we is see continuing yeah, exactly. euro dollar four after kind of a break, euro dollar four B. This, if you ask this chart, this chart would say, we are not recovering. It We're not say, right. And that's, you know, the idea here is that, you know, especially the Federal Reserve since March 2020, in particular, making a big emphasis of, quote unquote, bailing out the corporate bond market. We think that part of the market, which which I believe was a huge part. I mean, again, we don't know exactly what collateral was was pledged when and where um, the the, uh, the tripartite data, the tripartite repo data does give us some sense of the different types of collateral. But we don't know exactly in specifically how they're pledged at what different periods of time. But we would think since March of 2020, with the Federal Reserve bailing out corporate bonds, we might see another another leg up in this, you know, in our measure here, our, deriv our derived measure of observations per repo, which would suggest the collateral list is relaxing, it's expanding, more different types of collateral being used in the tri-party repo market. And that's not what we see. We see where, again, it looks more like we're still, we're still being stuck to a narrowed collateral list in usable repo transactions, at least in tri-party repo. It's, uh, well, you know, keeping Niels Bohr in mind and Heisenberg, we don't have the full picture, but this experiment so far is damning for reflation 4B or 3, 4, I don't know which one we're on. Okay, now another one, another data set. Jeff, what are we looking at here? Now we're gonna look at the total market value or dollar volume of collateral pledged in repo. And this is where we break it down by some collateral types to give you a sense of what happens during these times. So even during, as we said before, this Euro dollar number four period, which goes back to the end of 2017, so the number of observations per repo declined slightly, which meant less and less collateral dispersion, more collateral, uh, more collateral that's that's uh, more singular types of collateral being used. The dollar volume of repo, tri-party repo during that period, sort of skyrocketed. It went way up, and it went way up because tri-party repo was demanding mostly additional treasuries being posted as well as some agency MBS, some of, the, some of the best types of collateral in the system in order to get this uh, dollar volume to go way up. And so the question is why? What was going on in 2018 and 2019 that meant repo dollar volume had to go sky high, but only with this narrow collateral list? Does it, do we have anything to, looking at the 2020 post-corona time period, are we getting a different message here that reflation is taking place? Yeah, that is somewhat reflationary because remember, we we look at we look at the repo market, especially in dollar volume, as the actual lender of last resort. And we've talked about this many times before. Even using the tick data, we see it as outside the United States as an important part of emergency financing, where you'll see repo repo volume skyrocket during periods where you wouldn't ex wouldn't necessarily expect them to skyrocket because it's an indication of bad things happening and all of these hidden shadow parts that we can't see. So in, this, in the one sense, in the, in the post-March 2020 era, the fact that repo dollar volumes and collateral pledged, pledged has gone down is either, you know, it, it's, it's, a good, it's a sign that we're not in the same sort of emergency situation that we were beforehand. Again, you can see that, what, that last little spike up until 
Mar uh, February of 2020, which was everybody scrambling to get as much to arrange as much financing as they they possibly could at the last minute before things really broke down. Well, the fact Incredible. that it's come down a little bit is a good sign. But the fact that it hasn't come down more, maybe not necessarily a fully reflationary sign like the collateral dispersion or lack of collateral dispersion that we saw in the other parts of the tri-party repo data. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I highly encourage you to read these two articles. Again, you can find them on Alhambra Investments, both posted on the 1st of June. Both have quantum of money in the title. Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover in this long episode and revelatory episode? We, we have presented two new measures that I know I'll be using to see where we are in our monetary recovery. It's Anything just that, that you want to, yeah. The, the, the overall point here, going back to Niels Bohr and quantum physics, is that we need to, this is a good tool to look at some of the things, but remember, we're trying to match this with, again, the totality of phenomena, which is all sorts of other things, including real-time prices. Why are treasury yields, why are T-bills, why are all these things behaving the way they are? When we put these things together, we start to get a more comprehensive, or we hope is a, a more reasonable and comprehensive view of what must be going on in the shadow money system itself. Thank you, Jeff. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, take care, Emil.